Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and in this election cycle, there has been a ton of focus on election subversion and voter suppression, topics that we've covered at length, both both on this show and on Beyond Politics, where I've had guests like the elections expert Rick Hassan talk about both of those dynamics and how they might affect this election cycle and election cycles going forward. One of those experts that we featured on Beyond Politics and that we wanted to bring over to the Great Ideas Show is Bob Brandon. He helped establish the Fair Election Center 16 years ago, along with a former congresswoman, and it is one of the foremost institutions in America working to support election reform, litigation, advocacy, student engagement, and getting people to work at the polls and make the cogs and gears of our democracy run. So when Bob Brandon said that he would be willing to come back and talk to us once again about how things are going in the 2022 elections with all of those efforts, I jumped at the chance to revisit this ultra important topic for American democracy. So Bob, welcome back to WKXL and I guess the Beyond Politics family of programs and welcome specifically to Great Ideas. Thanks a lot, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I wish that this were sort of an upbeat topic. Maybe it will turn out to be because we've certainly heard a lot of fears, a lot of concerns, a, a lot of a lot of accusations about what's been going on around voter suppression and election subversion. And I want to I want to start off by just defining those terms a little bit. Rick Hassan and you in in your previous appearances have done a really great job of talking about what those two dynamics are. Could you just refresh us on when we talk about voter suppression and we talk about election subversion, what specifically do we mean? What are the concerns that we have in mind? Well, I think with with voter suppression, and it's we have a history in this country of, on one hand, trying to expand the franchise, giving the vote to women, giving the vote to Blacks after the Civil War, giving the vote to 18-year-olds, and so on. And as we've watched the electorate expand that way, the people in power and see that it's not always to their benefit to have more people voting, particularly new communities voting. So there's always been, frankly, from a, from a long time ago, an effort that really dates back to the, the this, after the Civil War and the beginning enfranchisement of freed slaves. Voter registration itself was really a system to put in place to kind of put checks on who's going to wind up voting. But um, but in the more recent period, the last 15 years or so, it may, may be a little bit longer, there's been this effort to, in many different ways, try to make it more difficult to vote. And it often has been, not just recently, but in the last 15 years, around a drumbeat of protecting against fraud which, as we've discussed before, and I know many other folks have heard, just doesn't exist. You know, we, we yes, maybe at some point the old city bosses used to stuff ballot boxes and stuff. But these days, an ID isn't going to keep somebody from, I mean, it, I'm sorry, without an ID, you're not going to wind up having people throw an election because they're pretending to be somebody else. So the, the ID which is really the first photo ID, the first narrowly focused ID in this country was passed in 2006, the year actually I started our organization in Indiana. And you know, it 
to many people, it seems like a fine idea. People have ID, but not everybody does. And if they don't, and let's say they want to get one, maybe they need a birth certificate. And they, I don't know where my birth certificate is. I don't know about you. You need a birth certificate. That probably costs you a hundred bucks. So for some people, it, it it's a problem. And then, you know, for folks that live in, in the inner city, they're not going to get a driver's license. You know, they're, they're going to be on mass transit. People give up their licenses when they get older. There's, there's all sorts of re- reasons why millions of people in this country don't have ID. Mm. And it's not enough to say, well, I will just give you one. For some people, that means driving to the county seat, which is far away, or in, and paying something, as I mentioned, for a birth certificate. So anyway, my point is, that's one way. And then as we began to loosen up the options for voting with a recognition that people work long hours, they work, they can't always get off from work. We tried to make voting more convenient so more people would vote. We started doing early voting. We started letting people register online. We opened up absentee ballots to not just the people that literally could show an excuse that they were away from their home on business or travel. And as we did that, we saw more and more people voting. And then the pandemic came along and just showed more than ever that if you provided options for people, they're going to vote. And what we saw was in the midst of the of the pandemic, the largest turnout ever in 2020. And that's because people had a lot of different options. Mm. So what happened right after the 2020 election? Lots of legislatures in parts of the country that are conservative and have tried to limit the vote because they don't like all these new voters started right away in the 2021 legislative sessions, reducing the hours that people had to vote early, making it more difficult to to register online, banning the ability of election officials to send out applications, for example, for, for absentee ballots, and many other ways to make it harder, um, you know, including not letting people give out water during elections when people are waiting in long lines in the heat. So those are pretty obvious reasons to make or, or ways to make it more difficult to vote. I see. So what and we're talking about just broadly, then, if if I'm following, is when when we speak of voter suppression, what we what we're referring to is specific measures, usually undertaken by one political party that holds power, in order to try to create a set of voting rules that gives them an advantage and that suppresses the ability of to vote of people who might tend to vote for the other party. The, the most common example that you've brought up is voter ID laws that may have a differential impact on, for example, Black voters who far disproportionately tend to vote for Democrats. And so you might see an interest in those kinds of laws in places where Republicans control the legislature or where Republicans hold the secretary of state position and there is some authority to set election rules. And that set of, of measures that could be very restrictive, but could be inclusive of things that are seemingly not that serious, like the ability to bring water and food to people waiting in line to vote. That all falls kind of under that rubric of voter suppression. And then there's a whole separate concern around election subversion, which is even more invasive attempts by legislatures, secretaries of state to alter the results of elections after the fact, or in some other way, set up the administration of elections so that they have some control over the outcome. Is is that about right? 
Yeah, and I think in that regard, this is a this is a new phenomenon. I mean, this is a this is a phenomenon that really grew up around the big lie that the last election in 2020 was stolen. And again, looking for opportunities instead of having the voters' voice and the voters' vote count to replace that in places by the decision by the legislature, which is a partisan body, no matter who's in charge. Hmm. So there's there's those those efforts have been tried. They have not been successful to date, but there are other efforts to undermine the regular order of elections. You know, one of a part of which is this whole attack on the men and women that are, in my view, the heroes of our country because they help run elections. They do it with not a lot of resources. They do it to help their neighbors make sure they have access to the ballot and vote. And to all those people that help them, the poll workers. And so you've seen an, a, a, an effort to attack election officials, whether they be at the sec- secretary of state level, that are trying to expand the opportunities to vote for their citizens, or at the local level, county or city, or for that matter, at the precinct level. But there are many county election officials. These are, these are the people in charge of running the election in a particular county who have been attacked verbally, been attacked online, some have been physically attacked and threatened. And for what? For doing their job, Mm. for making sure that they didn't succumb to the idea that part of the electorate shouldn't be able to vote because they're clearly suspect. And unfortunately, a number of those people are getting out of the, the business. They're getting, they're retiring, they're leaving. It's not worth it to them. And it's really unfortunate because we have a history in this country in many cases, election officials are elected or are appointed by parties, and yet they've really, generally speaking, been nonpartisan. When it comes to actually running the election, it doesn't matter whether they have a D or an R after their name. They really are trying to make sure that the election runs smoothly, everybody who needs a ballot gets one, that everybody that's registered gets to vote, and usually... Everybody knows what the rules are in advance, so people aren't caught up with misinformation at the end. That's so let well, let me ask you about that. Then, when we <laughs> had our last discussion back in June, you warned that there, we had seen shortages of poll workers back in 2020, and there were efforts underway, as you just alluded to, to intimidate, harass, and generally try to make as uncomfortable as possible the job of these election administrators and poll workers, where do we stand in terms of having those folks in place? Do do we have shortages? Do we have a lot of new people on the job who might be more prone to mistakes? How how is that whole picture looking as of right now? Well, so first of all, I I just want to say that in 2020, really mostly because of the pandemic, we had the, the vast majority of poll workers in this country have been older. You know, sometimes it's because they're retired and they get and they have the extra. They can spend 14 hours working the polls or 12 hours. And when the pandemic hit, many of them withdrew for obvious health reasons, and it made sense. But a lot of us help promote through our organization our work elections, poll worker recruitment portal, which which tied in with a major effort called Power the Polls, which in the end recruited over 700,000 people to really take the place. So there were very few precincts in 2020 in November that were closed down because of a lack of poll workers. 
This year we have a midterm, so it's not quite as much of a turnout to be expected. But and the pandemic is less an issue, but still somewhat of an issue. Power of the Polls continues to operate. And you know, if you've got listeners who want to sign up to be a poll worker, there are still jurisdictions that are looking for you might want to call and just ask, or you can go online to powerthepolls.org and sign up. I mean, we're getting close to the the end point, but when there are jurisdictions that still need help a week or two out, they're be willing to to have the help. But so just to say that this year, Power of the Polls has recruited about 135,000 people so far. And many of the jurisdictions that we talk to, because we talk to them pretty regularly, say they're in pretty good shape. There are definitely places around the country that still need help. Some of the bigger cities in Florida and Georgia and Pennsylvania and New York and Michigan. But generally speaking, you know, things are coming together. And I think we're seeing what we saw before, which is there are enough people that step up and say, this is this democracy is too important to me. And if I need to go and help out, make sure that people that are yelling and screaming and threatening don't disrupt the elections. That's what I'm going to do. There's strength in numbers when it comes to helping your neighbors vote. There was also some concern the last time we spoke that it's like that old ghost story, sort of horror story you might tell at a campfire where someone is home alone. Usually it's a babysitter and they get these creepy phone calls and then the police call and they say, get out. The calls are coming from inside the house. And that's sort of the the worry that we've had about people who are running to administer elections in responsible positions, let's say for secretary of state, who are adherents to the big lie, who they themselves are running on a platform of saying, you can't trust elections, you can't trust election administrators, and I'm going to make significant changes here that are, I guess, ostensibly to protect the vote, but would actually severely undermine the credibility of the vote. And we have seen since our last discussion, a number of those types of candidates make it through primaries, make it onto the ballot, How concerned should we be now about folks like that and the potential for them to assume positions where they could have a significant influence over American elections? I mean, I think we really do have to be concerned. I I can say that in in the past, you know, there are many, many secretaries of state, Democrats and Republicans alike, that whatever they, they may do a little different approach to things, they might not be as open as some secretaries who want everybody to have the most access as possible, but they're running fair elections. Mm. And you haven't seen in the past anybody, I think, that's come in and said, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to incur, I'm going to have my will imposed on the voters and I'm going to make it harder for some people. We obviously some of those, we see some of those people now. All I can say is I hope that the voters recognize that and they realize they're not going to sign up for having our democracy stilted like that. And, you know, beyond that, we do have guardrails and, you know, a secretary of state can't come in and just change the rules. They can't change the law. They can't throw people out of the precinct. You know, there are limits on what can be done. And that's also true with, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard from, there have been some efforts by some of the election deniers to try to get people to sign up to be poll workers, to sign up to be poll watchers. Um, to get ready to challenge anybody they want. Well, they can't really do that in most places. Mm. So you're limited. If you want to challenge somebody's right to vote, 
in most states, first of all, you have to have a reason. It has to be a real reason. It can't just be, I don't like the way you look, or I know you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent or whatever. So there are limits to what can be done. And then with poll workers, there are even more limits. I mean, they're really there to administer the election. They're not there to intimidate people. They're not there to ask for ID when the law says you don't, you can't ask for an ID. And the election judges, the people in charge of the precinct are going to manage that. I know, you know, there have been examples already in a few states where people who signed up to be poll watchers or poll workers and have had a public profile um, attacking the vote in the past are not being appointed. You know, the, the election judges and the people in charge of the elections really get to, by and large, approve the list of people that want to volunteer. I see. And just a related question on that note, there has been an effort to intimidate election workers, to harass, intimidate, and and otherwise make uncomfortable the job of being an election worker. You referred to it earlier. I referred to it earlier. Are we continuing to see that kind of activity? Is it is it having an effect? You know, I think for some people it will, but I, I can tell you that the enthusiasm for people to wanting wanting to go and help in the election, help their neighbors vote, is still pretty high. And I know, as you know, we work with a very large group of college students in our campus vote project, helping them just understand the rules about registered and voting as students. And we're often asking them if they want to be poll workers. You know, a lot of times election officials are looking for somebody younger who might be more tech savvy as the electronics get more sophisticated in the polls, or they might be bilingual because they come from an immigrant community. And so we're always finding election officials who'd say, if if you've got young people who are bilingual, who are tech savvy, we would love to have them. And we're working on that. You were referring a moment ago to some of the concerns about efforts to recruit election administrators to run for office and poll workers to actually work at elections, at polling places, and poll watchers who are partisan folks who go in and kind of, like the name implies, keep track of and, and monitor what's going on at polling places. And you were saying, look, this is a concern that people like Steve Bannon have been recruiting outright partisan folks, MAGA folks, big lie believers into these positions, but there's a limit to how much damage they can do. And and I actually do find that reassuring that there's sort of a, a cap on how concerned we should be. I do want to ask a little bit further about that, though, because one of the things that has helped protect our elections is for about 40 years, there was a consent decree kept a limit on what Republicans could do in terms of poll watching and monitoring because there was a a sense, a finding from a judge that those activities had crossed over a line into trying to differentially intimidate voters of color and people who might be voting for Democrats and that really you couldn't trust those efforts to be fair and to not somehow skew the vote. That consent decree, that, that order from the judge was lifted and was not in effect in 2020 and is now not in effect in this election cycle. Do you have any concerns about the fact that that long-time limitation is no longer in place? Have we seen problems arising from the fact that that 
is gone. And in connection with that, what do you make of reports about right-wing groups who are trying to monitor mail or or voter, absentee voter drop-off locations, in some cases coming armed? Are are, are there concerns on that score? You you know, I I think the consent decree played an important role. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it was it was lifted. The reality is the proof was in the pudding, so to speak, in 2020, when without that and with with lots of you know bravado, with the, the former president telling people to march to the polls and make sure the election isn't stolen. The fact of the matter is we had the biggest turnout election in history all across the board. And that says something. And to me, it says when there are efforts and people perceive that there's an effort to intimidate them and take away their right to vote, it also helps mobilize those folks to go out and vote. You know, we don't always think that our one vote matters, and a lot of people have convinced themselves if it's inconvenient and they're doing a lot of other things, they just don't get around to it. But I think, you know, efforts like that and some of the things you just described are going to motivate people to go out. I know Mm. with young people, you know, we, as I mentioned, we do a lot with college students and their turnout rates have historically increased to the highest levels ever in 2018 and 2020. And and now in 2022, people are, are going to ask again, well, are young people motivated to turn out? And I can tell you from the research we've done and the work we do day to day with all the students from across the country in our 320 or so campus partners, that there's a concern and an awareness that the issues they care about can't they don't want elected officials to be able to do away with the rights that they want. And they know that voting is the best way to make, to keep that from happening. So even though they don't always think their one vote matters, they've seen some of the changes that have taken place. You know, just look at the student debt relief that took place to look at the marijuana law change. Some of those things, it says to them, my vote actually made a difference. And so I've seen that. And at the same time, we know that there's been efforts historically and continue to be efforts to make it harder for students to vote. And that's what we work against on the Campus Vote Project all the time. You know, since you just referenced some of those efforts to suppress the vote and some of the reaction that people who have been targeted by those efforts tend to have, it does raise this interesting question about barriers to voting. There's been some research on this that shows that we don't see necessarily a diminishment of voter turnout, especially among groups that we're concerned are are targeted by barriers to voting after those barriers are put in place. And the, the theory is that voters react much in the way you just described. They realize that they're that they're being targeted. They realize that people from the other party are are trying to limit their ability to vote. They don't like it. The psych the psychology of loss aversion kicks in and they respond by getting more activated and, and turning out in greater numbers. And so you just you just don't see that fall off. Now, first of all, I want to editorialize for a second that sometimes, and I'm going to admit to my partisan stripes here because I'm a Democrat, some Republicans have used this dynamic to justify barriers to voting. They say, see, we put in place a voter ID law and we don't see any decrease in turnout. Therefore, it doesn't hurt. 
And no, if you have to overcome a barrier and you successfully do so, then golf clap for you. Great job, you know, sticking with your your fundamental right to vote and, and exercising it. But it doesn't mean that a barrier wasn't put in your way and that that's not a bad thing. But what have you seen with this raft of new barriers around the country? Have what first of all, what what barriers are, are most significant that you're keeping an eye on? And second of all, do we have any evidence from the primary so far about whether they truly are restraining people from turning out? Or are we seeing this same effect happen where people get motivated to turn out in response? Well, you know, so first on the overall effect, I, I would say this: the fact that there's a barrier in place or barriers in place and the overall turnout goes up doesn't necessarily mean that some people did not vote because of the barriers. Mm. It just means that there's a net plus when it comes to the impact on turnout. And and we've seen that in some high profile races like in Georgia last time. You know, we, you can look at the the runoff and the turnout numbers were astronomical for a runoff. And yet we know there were people that were unable to vote because Georgia had plenty of restrictions even before they passed new ones in 2021. But but I would say that in general, the kinds of barriers that are going up now uh, are making it harder to register. There's some efforts to try to get proof of citizenship in place, which, you know, already, but when you register, you sign a you sign your form and you say you're a citizen and you're 18 and, and you're a resident of where you say you are under penalty of law. These efforts to sort of make people have proof of citizenship, you're getting back to the same old thing. Do you do you need to find a birth certificate? You know, if you're a naturalized citizen and you were naturalized 40 years ago, do you know where your papers were? So there are efforts in, in for example, right now in Arizona, they're being challenged. Excuse me. And and so that's one area. In Texas, they decided that in order to get an absent request an absentee ballot, you needed to have the exact same ID number that you used when you registered initially, which could have been 34 years ago. And in, and in Texas, you can use the last four of your social security number or your either driver's license or your state ID. And people didn't know which they used. So in the primary this past year, thousands of people were unable to get their app, their absentee application because they had the wrong mismatch on the number. Some of them were then, depending on the county, got a note saying this doesn't match you need to come in and change it or you need to change it. But many of them didn't. It was too late. And there were there were literally thousands of Texans in the primary in March that were unable to get their absentee ballots because of that little change in the law. So th there's that. There have been efforts to, as I mentioned before, restrict the number of days of early voting. Montana decided to take away after 30 years, same-day registration works, works very well because it's if you think about it, it's the ultimate failsafe, if there's a mistake that's happened in your registration, you get to fix it on election day. Mm. And the election official is sitting across the actual person so they can see who it is. But the Republican legislature got rid of it. And then they also got rid of the use of student IDs, which were allowed to be used for voting for decades as well, because they didn't like the turnout that students were making in, in the state. So those are some of the kinds of things that we've seen. There are many other clever ways to restrict the vote, and I won't go into all of them now, because but they keep on coming up with new ones. It sounds like the answer <clears throat> is in part 
I look, it's very hard to track individually, especially after the fact, you know, were you restrained from voting by any of the following list of barriers that the legislature put in your way? It, it's hard to know. It's hard to get numbers, but it's also not, it's not correct either logically or mathematically to say, well, if turnout stays the same or goes up, that means that these barriers aren't a, a problem and aren't differentially limiting people who otherwise would have voted, and particularly people of a certain type, either race, ethnicity, political persuasion, or age, that would tend to vote for the other party. So there's still a problem. We just can't we just can't pin down exactly how much of an effect that they're having. Right. I, I mean, I can just tell you as a practical matter, we, we know it has an impact and, and it, motiv- it motivates other people, as I said, to turn out. And it, it does have people get angry and they try doubly hard to do what they have to do to vote. And that's good. But there's no reason to have the barriers to begin with. And we, we just are moving backwards in terms of, and as we narrow our democracy, it's bad for everybody. It's not just good for one party, bad for one party. It's it's just bad if we don't have everybody participating mm. in the election. You talked a little bit a moment ago about the role of young people. You do a lot of work on campuses. You coordinate in terms of trying to get young people to turn out. We did have extremely high turnout among young people in 2020. But historically, look, as a former campaign manager, I can tell you that anytime I used to hear a campaign say, oh, we're going to bring in new voters, we're going to bring out the young voters, I would say to myself, well, there's a losing campaign because it just never happens. It just never happens at the same rate that you see with older voters. Where do you think we stand in this election in terms of so engagement? The differential people. has narrowed quite a bit. You know, I would have agreed with you a number of years ago when we started, we're in our 11th year of the Campus Vote Project. And and our, our program, which is completely nonpartisan, it's really just to educate young people of what they need to do to register and vote and use the school they go to as a partner in educating them about the most basic part of being a citizen in our democracy. We, we've said to college presidents and vice presidents, this is your job. You know, you need to partner to do this. You need to make sure that they have good information and with the, and the professors as well. So in general, I would say this, the, the turnout. So let's look at college students for a minute, because that's what I know best. And it's not the same as every other young person. Some of non-college students have other barriers. Also, we work with lots of community college students that are, live in the community and have their own barriers. But college student turnout generally in 2020 was 66%. The overall turnout, if you remember, was about 67 or 68%. Mm-hmm. So that group anyway, came very close to the overall older population turnout. And I and I will say, as I mentioned before, the 18 to 24 year old young voters generally in 2018 were about 39%. In 2020, they were 50, sorry, yeah, 51 or 52%. And that's historic. Those are historic numbers for young people. And, you know, I just know from talking to many of them and talking to our staff, and we, we hire hundreds of students, we call them democracy fellows who help their schools, help their students get the basic information they need to register and vote. Talking to them, it's very clear that there's an interest in trying to connect the future that they have 
the things they care most about with voting. And, and that's what we're trying to do, because there's no lack of interest in changing the world for young people. That's why they're out protesting. You know, that's why they're concerned about things like climate change and gun violence and so on. And they find other ways to deal with that. And the cynicism of our political process for years has been such that they kind of go, yeah, that doesn't work. That, you know, tell me, show me how that works. And I think that's changing a bit, fortunately. And because it really, if if young people think they have power with their voice, they're now, that group is the largest voting bloc in the country right now. And when they finally realized, we did some research recently and, you know, mentioned that, by the way, turnout was the highest ever in 2020. And it resulted in the youngest, most diverse Congress elected in history. When you say that to somebody, they go, oh, it's more than my one vote. It's mm. all of our votes together. We actually have some power to make a difference. And I think that's the key to young people's increased interest in, in voting. Well, if I can insert a little public service announcement again, at the risk of revealing some of my own inherent partisan biases, I think that this past cycle and this past Congress is pretty strong proof that your vote makes a difference. Elections have consequences and the priorities of younger voters have been reflected. If you look at polling, you can see that younger voters care a lot about issues like climate and student loan debt and investing in the future. And what have you seen? You've seen the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You've seen the student loan relief executive order from the president. You've seen the climate deal that we saw as part of the Inflation Reduction Act recently. And in general, you, you've seen a set of priorities that I do think better reflect young people's interests and values. And I've talked before about the fact that with all respect to people in my age demographic and, and older, we have a little bit of a gerontocracy in this country, not just in who our leaders are, all, all due respect to them, but in terms of where the bulk of our, our tax dollars and our policies go, they go through entitlement programs disproportionately to older people. I'm in favor of this. I, I, I'm in favor of Medicare. I'm in favor of Social Security. But one sixth of young Americans under the age of 18 who can't vote live in poverty. And so we do need to find a way to reflect the values of younger voters in our government. And I think engagement is the way to do it. And I think this, the past two years have shown that it works. There are real, verifiable, tangible, palpable effects that we're seeing and benefits for, for interests that young voters have. And, you know, it, it, one of the issues is, you know, as, as, as an old campaigner, as you are, the, the because of what you said, young people were never talked to. Campaigns didn't reach out to them, and they certainly didn't reach out to them in the ways that they would hear it. Now, these days, if you want to reach 18 to 24-year-olds, you're not going to do it through broadcast advertising. You're not going to do it, frankly, through partisan messaging. You're going to do it through TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, and you're going to do it by not being partisan, by, by talking about issues and the power that exists when one person votes and gets people like them to vote as well. Exactly. Couldn't couldn't have said it better. And so again, public service announcement for people who find this topic interesting and who care. And if you're in that younger voter set, it, it, it's making a difference. It matters. And kudos to you if you are a voter or if 
you know, as, as Bob was referring to, if you've gotten engaged through power of the polls and you're trying to help run our democracy, extra, extra credit to you on that assignment. Bob, is this going to be a safe and fair election? I, I think so. You know, I think there, there's a lot of talk, but I do think there's strength in numbers, as I said, and I think more people turn out to vote and more people turn out to work at the polls, we're, we're going to be fine. And frankly, we have to be, because if our elections become a battleground, then we have no democracy and that we can't afford. Um, you know, the one other thing I'll just say, because there, there are people always looking for information about registering and voting, as you know, if you go to our website, fairelectioncenter.org, we have state-specific resources for every state in the country. We have a voting guide that'll tell you when when registration's open, when is it closed. In, in many states now, it is closed as of today. But there are states that have another week or two and some states that you can register even on election day. And, and just as importantly, when is early voting, whether you need an ID or not. And, and how to find where your precinct is and everything else. All that information is on our website. And it's an easy to use and understand form for people if they're looking for basic voter information. Fairelectionscenter.org. That's elections with an S? Correct. Fairelectionscenter.org. As you look forward, I, I, I was going to ask you the bummer version of this question, but I think this overall topic can can too easily veer into being a bummer, and I don't want it to be. I want people to have equal measure of concern and hope. So I'm going to ask you both sides of the coin. As you look forward, I want to ask you what gives you hope about our future prospects for for maintaining our democracy and maintaining our system of elections, and what makes you the most concerned. And I'll I'll just add a slightly finer point to that last piece. I am worried, and I've written about independent state legislature theory and the case that's wending its way now into and through the Supreme Court, and the the possibility that some of the mechanisms that you and other advocacy organizations use, availing themselves of the legal system and state constitutions to protect people's constitutional rights to vote and not let state legislatures go amok in some kind of a partisan fashion, that worries me. So I want to ask both, what what worries you and what gives you hope about the future? Well, I'll start with what worries me. You know, I do think the Supreme Court has chipped away at the Voting Rights Act in a number of ways already. Um, the case you're talking about, and we don't need to get into details, it's pretty in the weeds, but the independent state legislature's theory, you know, basically will create chaos because what it'll do is say that the courts don't have a role to play in interpreting their own state constitutions in terms of the rights of their individual people, if the legislature wants to set election terms. And it, it's it, to me, it's it, and to most people, it's a misreading of the Constitution and the right of elect, of states to set elections. But And it would create, as I said, enormous chaos. We'll, we'll be weighing in on behalf of the League of Women Voters in that case in an amicus brief, not involved. Uh, there are many other really great lawyers that are actually working on the case. So those two things, this, the, the, the Voting Rights Act itself, which has been the linchpin to expansion of the franchise in this country, is continues to be under attack by this court in a very ideological way, which is really unfortunate for those of us that are in the studied law and, realize, and believe in precedent and the rightness of the law and the Constitution. In terms of what gives me hope? I, I think it's really this enormous pushback against voter suppression, and in particular, young people. 
because they are the future. They are the grow the largest grow growing part of the electorate. And when they realize that they have a voice when they weigh in in elections, it will make a big difference going forward. And it already has. Well, I know that we've thrown a lot of information at our listeners and, and viewers here today, the most important pieces of which were those websites. So let's just repeat them one more time. You are from the Fair Election Center. And if you go to fairelectioncenter.org, you can get information about voting in your state that is accurate, credible, and real. So take advantage of that. And then powerthepolls.org. If you want to get involved, there still may be opportunities to help make our democracy run wherever you are. Bob Brandon, thank you so much for all of this really important information. Thanks, Matt. It's always a pleasure.